Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. This is the word of Almighty God. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's pray. Father, please now add your blessing to our study of your holy word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So, y'all, it's Christmas Eve. You happy about this? Yeah. It is a wonderful time of the year. I know it's hard for some folks, but there's so much beauty. What's it all about? Is Christmas about gifts and lights and decorations and food? No, but they're good things, right? You guys are pro-food? But those aren't at the center of what Christmas is about. Maybe Christmas is about a dramatic story of a young girl and her husband traveling to a small town far away just in time for her to deliver her firstborn child. Now with that, you're a little closer to the central meaning of Christmas, but even there, you can get so caught up in the story and in the drama that you forget what it's all about. Christmas is about Jesus. Christmas is about the unfolding story of the grace of Almighty God. It's a story that spans all of eternity. Christmas is about God keeping his promise and accomplishing God's eternal plan. Christmas is a glorious step in the process of God doing something amazing, something stunning, something worth celebrating. So my goal this morning, our goal together this morning is simple. Let's use the word of God to point out several glorious details that surround the birth and the mission of Jesus. And my hope is when you see these marvelous details all put together, you're going to have a a new passion, a new excitement, a new joy in the coming of Jesus. I want you to love Christmas, but not for the trees necessarily. They're fine. Not for the food, not for the family, not for the gifts. They're fine. Those are nice. But I want you to love Christmas because you are amazed at Jesus. Now, a lot of times when you look at Christmas, especially on a Christmas Eve Sunday service, right? There's going to be a New Testament gospel passage telling the story of the Savior's birth. We, We heard one of those read during our Advent reading earlier this morning. Later this evening, Lord willing, we'll hear that story read from the book of Luke as we are hanging out at the Lekowitz's house and celebrating Christmas by candlelight. And I really do hope you come to that. Sometimes, if you're not going to study one of the gospel passages, you'll study something Old Testament to talk about Christmas. The the prophecies of the coming of the Savior, like you read in Isaiah. Those are great things. They set the background for the celebration. But the way we want to accomplish preparing for Christmas today is for us to look at one single passage of Scripture here in the book of Galatians, two verses, and we're going to find six amazing truths about Jesus and about Jesus' mission that will grab our attention and stir our hearts to worship Him this Christmas. So we're going to work through two verses, and I want you to ask God to open your heart to the amazing things He wants you to remember as you look forward to the celebration of the Savior's birth. We are going to look together at what I've called the theology of Christmas. How nerdy does that sound, by the way? 
You guys pro-nerdy theology for, of Christmas? Yes. All right, that's good, that's good. All right. Some of you will have some notes on this because I've, I've walked through this passage with you once before. It'll be a little different this time, but it, it'll be close. So point number one, Jesus came at the perfect time. Jesus came at the perfect time. Galatians 4, 4 set, begins, but when the fullness of time had come. Many things have been said, can be said, about how God works in time. But this one thing we know for sure, since God is perfect, and since God is sovereign, God's timing is always just right. God is never late. God is never early. He never makes a timing mistake. So that first phrase of this verse should not catch you by surprise. God sent Jesus at just the right time in the fullness of time. Now, when you think about the fact that Jesus came in the fullness of time, when the time was perfectly fulfilled, one thing you should understand is that the coming of Jesus was planned by God before there was time. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 18 to 20. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by, of your for, by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So get this, before God created the world, God had already planned what Jesus would do. That means God the Father, before time began, had already chosen that he would send Jesus into the world to save those who would be God's children. Now, this is an eternal, a forever plan of God. We call it sometimes the covenant of redemption. You've heard that a few times in this setting, right? What's it mean? Before God ever created anything, the triune deity chose to display both his justice and his mercy in his creation. God the Father elects a people that he will save them out of humanity. And he chose to send the Son to redeem his people. God the Son willingly chose to be sent by his Father to perform the task of redeeming the elect and receiving those people as a gift from the Father as a reward for his work. God the Holy Spirit would aid the Son in his ministry, convicting people of their sin, showing them their need for the Savior, sealing the saved, indwelling every single believer. I want you to grasp the fullness of time in that verse, therefore includes eternity past. For all of history and beyond all of history, God planned to send the Son into the world. So the event that we celebrate at Christmas time had been anticipated for longer than the stars have shown or the earth has turned. The fullness of time also includes more than the eternal half or part of the plan. 
Think with me just through the account of human history. If we get into time. First, God planned the creation. God planned the mission of Jesus. Then, God created the universe and time and everything that exists. God created mankind in His image for the purpose of bringing God glory. And God placed the first man, Adam, in the garden. Adam, in the garden, had one responsibility. (laughs) Obey God. Honor God. If Adam would obey, don't eat from the tree. If Adam would obey, he would live. And his posterity would live. If Adam would disobey, he would find death. And since Adam is the first human, Adam's choice is the representative choice of all people descended from him. Sadly, not long after the creation of humanity, man did something terrible. It's far more than about fruit, friends. Adam rebelled against God. And man's rebellion against God, the very first sin, plunged humanity into a state of sinfulness, corruption, and misery. All of the pain, all the sickness, all the evil, all the hardships that you and I face today, it's connected to our first parent's choice to turn away from God. God wasn't surprised by man's rebellion. Remember, God's plan has been in place from eternity past, and his plan was to redeem, so God's not surprised. God promised early in the book of Genesis that he was going to send somebody into the world, descended from the woman in the garden, who would set right what went wrong when humanity rebelled against God. Listen to God's words, actually to the enemy, to the devil, predicting and giving the first promise of a coming Savior. In Genesis 3.15, the Word of God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. In those words, God promises he's going to send somebody into the world who will set right what man did wrong in the Garden of Eden. After Christ's resurrection, Paul describes what happened like this. In Romans 5.12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. There's Adam right there. In Romans 5.18, Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Well, how did God bring that all about? He chose a man, Abraham. And he built a nation out of Abraham. That nation became known as the nation of Israel. And throughout Israel's history in the Old Testament, God promised time and time again that he would bring into the world a man who would accomplish God's eternal plan. As Israel came into its own as a nation, the nation rebelled against God just like Adam had rebelled against God in the garden. Though God graciously had given Israel everything they could ever need as a nation, the people turned away from God and failed to follow God's law. In Isaiah 64, 6, God says this, speaking of the nation, We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Or in Malachi 3, 7. 
God says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? In Romans 3.20, Paul says this, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In fact, part of the fullness of time is the time that God gave for the nation of Israel to prove that no people left to themselves will ever be good enough or obedient enough to follow the law of God. Man's condition was proved to be totally desperate so that we could grasp the significance that God would send a Savior. Now, besides Israel's establishment, besides their rebellion, other things are in place in the nation that makes the timing of Christ's coming perfect. Judah, the southern portion of Israel, went to captivity in Babylon, but after their captivity, they finally stopped worshiping idols. That's a good thing, right? Also, during the Babylonian captivity, the Jews began meeting in synagogues. That was crucial because the apostles later would travel from town to town and city to city sharing the gospel. And the Jews, by the time Jesus came, had a completed set of Old Testament scriptures that perfectly predicted his coming. But more is in place in in Israel's national condition that makes the time perfect for Jesus to come. A little more than 300 years before the time of Christ, a guy named Alexander the Great, you ever heard of him? I don't know what I got to do to get the Great at the end of my name, but it sounds kind of cool, doesn't it? (laughs) Alexander the Great expanded the Greek empire all over the known world. And when he did, he brought a common language to people of all sorts of different nations and all sorts of different cultures. That would enable the communication of the gospel to travel from Israel to the entire world without the difficulty of communication that would have been there just a few centuries earlier. And as many of you know, when Jesus was born, it was during the time of the Roman Empire. The Romans brought about something called the Pax Romana. That means the peace of Rome. Though the people of the nations that the Roman Empire governed were in fact conquered, they were governed under Roman rule, they were at the same time not under the threat of invasion. You know why the nations weren't under the threat of invasion from outside? Because Rome conquered their neighbors too. So since everybody was under Roman rule, there was peace. That opened the door for the gospel to spread across national boundaries where the Greek language had already gone. And the Romans changed the world by building a system of roads. And that connected the world in a way that nobody had ever seen before. These roads kept the Roman supply lines open as their soldiers and their officials traveled throughout the territories. And the very same road system, that very same road system, will be traveled by Paul and the apostles, as they spread the good news of Jesus to nation after nation after nation after nation. Let me give you one more fascinating thought about the timing of Christ's arrival. I want to give you a prophecy from the book of Daniel that feels a little obscure to us today. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and 25, we read, 
70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Now, that is an odd-sounding section of Scripture. And I'm not going to try to unpack much of it, but to say this. It tells us that God had scheduled the time for the arrival of the Messiah. The anointed prince from God. It was coming at a particular moment. And that moment would follow exactly the proper number of years from the moment the initial decree went forth from a Persian ruler to allow for the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. God told the people, this is how long you have from the decree to rebuild to the arrival of the Messiah. This is how long you have to get yourselves right and get ready for my promised one to come. Without question, God set events in motion at just the right time to accomplish his will in a way that would seem impossible even a few hundred years previously. And the glorious thing about this is that the time God set to accomplish all this stuff was set before the dawn of time. Our sovereign God knew exactly when he would send his son exactly when he would accomplish his plan. And as we look forward to Christmas, let's remember, we're celebrating a day that God planned for eternity and brought about at just exactly the right time. But there's more than the right timing. Point number two, Jesus is God with us. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Just the right time, God sent his son. God's plan to save humanity did not include God sending a prophet, did not include him sending a good teacher to finish the work. God did not send a simple representative or ambassador. No, God sent Jesus, God the son. Jesus is perfect, and he's perfectly divine. He is God's son. Now, being God's son does not mean that Jesus was created by God. He is eternal, just like his father. He is of the same essence, the same substance as the father. The the eternal sonship of Jesus has to do with the forever relationship of love and glory among the persons of the Trinity Never in all of eternity, friends, is God the Father not a father. He is fatherly all the way down. And never in all of eternity is God the Son not a son. He is son all the way down. This is how for all of eternity, even before creation, God has related amongst the persons of the Trinity. There's been a love that is glorious, mutual, perfect, lacking in nothing. So be very clear about this. When God chose to create, he didn't create because he lacked something. 
family, love, glory, relationship, that's all present in the Trinity, has nothing to do with you and me. He did not have to make us to fill in a gap. Now, Jesus also did become the Son of God in another sense when he took on flesh. When he was formed in the womb of the Virgin with God as his Father, Jesus was not always human, but he's always existed as God, God the Son. Now, why is it important for you and me to know Jesus is God? Well, if Jesus is not God, he does not have the infinite worth necessary to pay the price for the sins of humanity. That's crucial. If Jesus is not God, he cannot save anybody. But since Jesus is the Son of God, sent into the world, he's got the ability to save everybody who will come to him. Third point. Jesus became man in order to accomplish his mission. He became man to accomplish his mission. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. Jesus is not only the son of God. Jesus also did something incredible. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 say of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, perfectly God, always God for all of eternity, took a step downward and took upon himself humanity as well. Jesus did not merely become human looking. He did the impossible. Jesus, God the Son, became genuinely a human being. Why is it significant that Jesus is not just God, but also truly man? Again, think back to the fact that we as humanity have sinned against God. Jesus came to be our substitute. He came to pay our penalty in our stead. And he can only do this as a human. For somebody to pay the debt of humanity, he's got to be genuinely human. Or, just as you think about Adam in the garden, because Adam represented humanity with his decision to go against God, we needed another human to represent humanity, the saved, in being justified. Jesus becoming human is also an incredibly loving thing, friends. Jesus took on himself flesh, complete with its aches and pains and frailties. You ever think about the fact that Jesus, eternal God, experienced hunger and thirst, sorrow and fatigue, all the things that you and I suffer? He had a family and he knew the sadness of the death of loved ones. He became man. And in doing so, he identifies with us. He shows us, he totally understands everything we could ever suffer. He sympathizes with us as a human, even though he always also maintains perfect deity. Now, 
Sympathizing with us is not the primary reason Jesus took on flesh, but it is significant that as the writer to the book of or the, the writer to the Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. The fact that Galatians 4, 4 says Jesus was born of a woman connects us to the promise of God found in Genesis 3. God told the devil that somebody born of woman would crush the devil's head. Now, maybe 4,000 years later, the one has finally come. He's born of woman. He's connected with humanity, but he's perfect God without sin. Fourth point. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. Again, Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. This is one last circumstance from verse 4. I want us to see surrounding the birth of Jesus. He was born under the law. Now, go back to Adam in the garden again in your head. Adam was under the law. Law. How do we know? If Adam would obey the command of God not to eat of the tree in the garden, Adam would live. Whenever you hear a call to do something right or to avoid something wrong so that you might live, you are hearing law. Right? The law says do and live. The gospel says it's been done. Now you may live. When God established his relationship with national Israel, he gave the nation laws to obey so that they could avoid his judgment. Do this and live, nation. In the time Jesus came to earth, he lived under that system of ceremonial law that God had given the nation of Israel. And though Jesus was perfectly God, without sin in any form, he still chose to submit himself to God the Father and to those commands of God. Well, part of the mission of Jesus includes him perfectly fulfilling all righteousness. In order to be our substitute, in order to save our very souls, Jesus had to be without sin. And in order to give us righteousness so we could be in the presence of God, Jesus had to live perfect righteousness. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law that no other human being through all of human history could ever have fulfilled. More than just obeying general laws, Jesus perfectly met God's requirement of absolute, unblemished, infinite, God-sized righteousness. Jesus kept the law where nobody ever had before. In Leviticus 19, verse 2, God said to the nation of Israel, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, You be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. None of us can do it. The actual law of God, the true test of anybody pleasing God, is to be just as good, just as holy, just as perfect as God is. Let me ask you, if that's your standard, how many of you are making it? You've got to be as good as the infinitely holy God. Are you there? Not on your own. 
Nobody had ever done that under Adam. But Jesus Christ, born under the law, came to fulfill the law. That's gorgeous. Now, let's review verse 4 before we look at verse 5. Jesus came at just the right time when God had ordered events for the most important moment in eternal human history. Jesus came to earth, God the Son. Jesus came to earth and took on flesh in order to be able to serve as the substitute for sinful humanity. And Jesus came and he lived under the law of God. Those are the circumstances surrounding his coming. Now the last two points, let's see what Jesus did. Point five. Jesus came to redeem us. Jesus came to redeem us. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus came on a mission. And one part of that mission is redemption. The word redeem carries with it the concept of purchase, paying for something. Quite literally, the Greek word here means to buy out of. How many of you guys remember the book of Hosea? Right? First three chapters of the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea marries a woman named Gomer. I think that's the first mistake. Don't marry a woman named Gomer. And Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea. She chose to live in immorality. And in chapter 3, she had gone so far off the deep end, she had gone so against the law, that Gomer was actually on an auction block ready to be sold into a life of slavery. And God told Hosea, I want you to go buy her back. And Hosea does. Picture it in your mind. Hosea goes and spends his resources to purchase Gomer, rescuing her from the fate that she had earned for her behavior. That is redemption. That's what redemption means. He bought her out of the slavery and the judgment she had earned. You and I, you and I have sinned against God in countless ways. We'd admit that, wouldn't we? But I want you to remember this. When you think about your sinning against God, do you think about your bad stuff? Listen, before you knew Jesus, even your good stuff was bad. You get that? We've sinned against God in ways we didn't even think were sin. In our supposed goodness... Maybe in our religious activities, maybe in our best expressions, mankind apart from Jesus still has cold hearts that are selfish, full of doubt, full of complaint, full of self-centeredness, doing things not for the glory of God, which is the reason things should be done. As sinners before God, all people have earned the fury of God, the wrath of God, the judgment of God. We've earned separation from God. We've earned death. That's why Romans 6.23 says that death is the wages of sin. It's what you earn for sinning, just like doing a job. When you, get, you do a job, you earn your pay. We in our sin have earned death. But Jesus came to redeem us. 
You cannot redeem yourself because you can't live infinite perfection. You've already blown it. Jesus came to pay the price for us, to rescue us from the death we deserve. How great a price was it? Well, our debt before God is infinite because we in our sin have infinitely offended God in God's infinite perfection. But Jesus, God the Son, guess what he has? Infinite value, infinite capacity. Therefore, Jesus and only Jesus can pay the infinite price we could never pay. What would cost you and me an eternity in hell, Jesus was able to pay with his blood shed on the cross. Let me say it again. I want to be as simple as I can be. God is rightly and justly wrathful, justly angry, justly offended toward us because we have sinned against him. God in his justice demands that the proper penalty be paid for for our crimes against him. We could never survive paying that payment. We would instead be consigned to an eternity of suffering in hell for what we've done against God. But Jesus gave his life as a sacrificial substitute. He willingly took on himself the penalty we deserved. He paid the price we could never pay to purchase, to buy out, to redeem the people of God. And that work of redemption began, humanly speaking, at his coming to earth at Christmas. Point number six, last one. This is so good. Jesus came to make us God's children. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. One last thing Jesus did should should stun us. He didn't just come to pay your debt. He didn't just come to redeem us. He didn't just come to take away our guilt. He did not just come to put us on neutral ground. He did not just come to take away the negative consequences that we deserve. No, Jesus came to adopt us into God's very family. John 1, 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This is stunning. Not only is God willing to forgive us our sins, he's willing to make us part of his family. He not only takes away the negative consequences for our evil toward him, but he also brings us into the family, grants us the rights of sons and daughters, and gives us infinite goodness where we had only earned infinite punishment before. Were we to try to truly explore the depths of that facet of Christ's work on our behalf, we'd be here for days and we'd never exhaust the glory. God, the very one we've offended, 
The very one we've hated, the very one who should kill us all, that God has not only paid our penalty, but he makes us his children. God loves us. What a Savior. What a God. What a miracle we see in infant form in the manger in Bethlehem. So, what do I want you to get? How does this tie to Christmas? I don't want you to miss the point. I told the story last time I did this, and I can't help but tell it again. Years ago, I was at a big conference called Together for the Gospel in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was listening to Albert Moeller speak. You guys know Al Moeller? I like him, a good dude. And he tells a story of Britain's Prince Philip. He was at a state dinner in South Africa. And a South African waiter comes up to Philip and he says, would you like the beef or the duck? Prince Philip responded to the waiter by saying, tell me about the duck. Surprised, the waiter took a moment and said, it's like a chicken, but it swims. (laughs) Why? See, the waiter thought, this guy has somehow completely missed the point of my question. He's missed the obvious. You know what a duck is. Tell me about the duck. Tell me about Christmas. What is it we celebrate tomorrow? Don't miss the point. Are you missing the obvious? Or is the wonderful day of celebration that we'll go through tomorrow, that we'll sing about tonight, are you remembering how at the perfectly fulfilled moment in all of eternity, God became a man? How he lived absolute perfection to fulfill the righteousness you and I could never fulfill. How he died to pay a debt he did not owe to rescue us from paying a debt we could not pay. And how he not only paid the price for our sins, but brings us into relationship with the Holy One who created us, making us his very own children. When you think Christmas, do you only see the world's images of gifts and trees and family? Do you only see a cute little baby and a peasant girl in a stable? Either of those is way too small and misses the obvious. Christmas is the gospel. Christmas is God doing what God planned for an eternity to do. Christmas is God breaking into the flow of human history in a unique way to rescue people from his perfect, pure, good, holy, righteous wrath. Christians, let's celebrate Christmas with our minds fully engaged. Let's love the theology, the gospel of Christmas. And listen to me. Some of you have heard this a thousand times. Maybe someone hears this for the first time. If you have not been forgiven by God, if you have not let go of sin and self and run to Jesus to be rescued from the punishment you deserve for sinning against God, I urge you to do it today. 
do it today. Jesus will welcome you today. Jesus will forgive you today. Stop fighting him. Stop ignoring him. Stop running from him. And instead, embrace him and believe in him and surrender. Without a relationship with Jesus, Christmas is useless to you. You need God's grace. You need to know God's Son. You need forgiveness. And God has provided a way for all people to be forgiven and made right with Him through Jesus. Come to Jesus today and make this season of Christmas one that is truly full of joy. Let's pray together, friends. Lord, what a day! What a message. What a glorious gospel we have. God, I pray that as we bow, you'll do your work in the hearts of everyone here. Shape the hearts and minds of Christians that we would better honor you. Change the hearts of unbelievers, giving genuine conviction of sin and a genuine deep desire to rest in Jesus for salvation. God, please do miracles that only you can do. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.